Welcome to the Hobcast Book Show, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime, mystery and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of running a creative business in this challenging world. We'll hear from the people who make this possible, the authors, the cover designers and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast Book Show from Hobet Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. Welcome to the Hobcast Book Show, episode 159. My name is Adrian Hobart. My name is... Oh, hello, Tinkerbell. I mean, Rebecca Collins. Sorry, Tinkerbell's just walked into the room. And together we run Hobart Books, UK independent publishers of the following four genres. Crime. Mysteries. Suspense. And thrillers. And indeed, the cat has walked in. This is one of two cats that we have. She's so pretty. Yes, she is. Tinkerbell has been with us for three weeks and settling in. Just beautifully, frankly. Right, well, well, we'll ignore Tinkerbell for a bit. She'll probably want some fuss in a minute. Let's get into some news. Oh, we ought to mention who our guest is. Roger A. Price is our guest this week. Oh, what an interview. Yeah, it was great. It was, I mean, I say this a lot, but it was definitely one of the best we've had. Yeah. <laughs> so Roger is a former police officer, retired as a detective inspector, and he's done some really exciting policing. He has. Um, some, you know, a lot of undercover stuff. And have been in charge of all sorts of uh, operations at a national, international and local level in his uh, home constabulary of Lancashire. And uh, has been a writer for a number of years too. And it really was one of those interviews. Lots of advice for budding writers as well. Terrific, yeah. So well worth a listen. Uh, So Roger is our guest a little later in the show. We go into the news section first. And I think we'll we'll go with this one, which you picked out, um, and I'm going to add a sort of a little bit more detail yeah. to it. But so, you give give us the headlines. Okay, so it wasn't in the bookseller for once. No, it, I came across it in um, Books Island magazine. Um, so it's about publishing Ireland, which um, I don't know if you know, but you know we're talking about Ireland, the country. Yes, right. <laughs> but there's various organisations like the IPG publishing. Um, association um just publishers to join us in yeah yeah it's it's an industry-wide body yeah in um, ireland yes and a lot of the irish publishers i know about are in publishing ireland so it's quite a strong organization and so the headline is that publishing ireland fully supports adoption of the european artificial intelligence act now i didn't know there was a um, european artificial intelligence act i must admit but um so the article um, talks about a coalition of over 200 organisations across Europe's creative and cultural sectors. Um, so lots of publishers included in that, but not mm-hmm. just publishers. Um, have joined together to urge EU member states to approve the Act. The coalition said in a statement, um, the AI Act is a vital piece of legislation that will regulate the role of AI in Europe and help set a global standard for how we expect AI systems to operate. Europe has a unique opportunity to show global leadership in the AI framework for the benefit of EU citizens. Now, obviously, this doesn't apply to um, 
<laughs> Great Britain at the moment. No, because we're out. Um, but <laughs> yeah. it's interesting, isn't it? And and they're basically lauding it as, you know, we are doing the, the, something that's going to help protect these sort of AI tidal waves that's coming. And um, it sounds like a really positive thing to me. Yes. Headline news is positive. And the reason they're celebrating it is because it's the first attempt by any legis- legislative body to put a handbrake on the way that AI is operating globally. Yes. Um, so that it's unique in that regard. And actually, it was only announced this week in, by the EU what they're, they're planning to do. And they're talking about it taking the minimum of six months to put in place. Uh, and it would be uh, binding for any companies operating in the EU. So it doesn't include us, unfortunately. No. However... Having looked at the scope and the aims of the legislation, I went on the EU website just now and um, had a look. It is not about what these bodies are thinking it is or hoping it might be, because what we as publishers need is a handbrake and some legislation that impacts on copyright. Yes, I think that's the key word, isn't it? Copyright. Yeah. And what has been happening, as we've talked about, you know, almost on a weekly basis uh, in recent months, is that generative AI companies are taking copyrighted material, feeding it into their systems so that the machines learn how to copy uh, creative works that are out there mm. without any recompense for the creators or indeed the people who own the rights. And this applies across music, publishing, uh, all sorts of all things. sorts everything yeah. you can imagine that's that's a creative thing that you can then generate with ai and this legislation does not tackle that at all what it is about is putting in safety frameworks where ai might impact on society in terms of um you know impacting on systems in healthcare or uh making things more difficult in terms of uh prejudice against certain groups uh, and that sort of thing. It is about, it, it, it's, you know, they're, they're looking at systemic risks, risks to the whole of society. They're not looking specifically okay. at restricting how these people are, are, are operating at the moment. So do you think these the, these organisations have slightly misunderstood that? Or? No, I think what they, well, I, I think what they've chosen not to say is, but what about copyright? What they've mm. chosen to say is it's, well, at least someone's taking some action somewhere. Exactly. And Maybe it, might, it might promote other legislative bodies yeah. to actually start looking further it, at yeah. AI. I think, I think you're right there. They're, they're seeing that this is happening. They're thinking, right, let's jump on this. Let's show our voice, so, you know, speak up, and then it'll snowball into what we actually want to happen. Yes, I think that's right. I think that, you know, the fact that they're lauding the fact that someone's taking some action on, to some degree on something yeah. against AI companies. Which is, which is a good thing. It's, there's no bad thing at all, so. No, uh, but it's not what and it's, any of us want it's in the slow. creative industries. And yes, it'll take forever. Mm. And the thing about AI is it's going so fast that the cat's out of the bag kind of thing is happening at the it, moment. Yeah. It, it, Organisations and... Um, I suppose I was thinking sort of, you know, the red tape of, of any sort of change in legislation is so slow and cumbersome. It's never going to catch up. Yeah, and, and it's the Wild West at the moment. The AI just running a truck through, the, you know, all the companies are running a truck through, um, you know, by saying that specifically 
uh, our type of copyright infringement is not covered by copyright legislation. Because mm. I call that, it is infringement in my view, just because it's technically not included because it wasn't thought of when the legislation was created. In the spirit of the legislation, it's completely out of order. But unfortunately, businesses don't often run on spirit. No, no they don't. <laughs> no, they don't. No, indeed. Okay, and our second story is about big tech again. And yeah. look, we've been talking about Spotify and their role in audiobooks quite a lot as well over the last few weeks. And um, we were alarmed to well, say that... Uh, happily we, alarmed. No, no, no. We, no oh. we, in Going back a few uh, weeks, okay, sorry. we were alarmed when Spotify announced that they were going to... Um, basically offer subscribers 15 hours a month of free audiobook titles. Yes. Now, as I said before, I mean, there aren't that many people in the world who get through more than 15 hours of audiobooks a month. No, I couldn't. Oh, 15 hours? I would yes. do 15 hours in the do car. Li- right. Do you? Do you really listen to 15 hours if, worth of audiobooks a month? I'd have to do month? the maths, but if, if I did school run every day, that's... Uh... You might get there, but it's, <laughs> it's, that's a lot of audiobooks. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm you know, half-hour trips to school and back, you're not going to... In a month, though. In a month. Yes, possibly. But what I'm saying is that the average user, I'm sure, only uses one, possibly two titles, at which point only then will they start paying for another one. Yeah. Do you see what I mean? I do. I do see what you mean, yeah. So I was really suspicious, and a lot of um, publishing figures have said, hang on a second, uh, you know, you can't just offer that without telling us how you're going to recompense us. Anyway, Spotify have gone uh, said this week that they have paid audiobook publishers tens of millions since allowing f- users 15 hours of audiobook listening in its premium subscription package last autumn. That sounds like a lot. Yes. Uh, it doesn't really give you a specific figure, but tens of millions is what they're saying. <laughs> tens of millions of what? Pennies? Um, <laughs> the company said that the figure reported by trade magazine the bookseller, we're writing, this has come from a Guardian article, is 100% royalties and that it expects to continue growing royalty payouts in future. It would not give a more precise amount for payouts so far, but said it, that the tens of millions figure applies in both pounds and dollars. Well, <laughs> I mean, I mean, there's a phrase involving Sherlock. Um, and what's that? I'm not going to say it because it's a four-letter word, love. Oh, Okay. However, the Society of Authors, ever alert, said they remain concerned at the lack of clarity about the deals. The industry body said it is still waiting to see the effect on author incomes and whether these are real additional sales or simply the taking market share from Amazon. And I think it's worth saying that Audible are rattled, that's for sure, um, because they've laid off 2,000 people from there. Audible have. Yeah, yeah, which is probably a very large proportion of the workforce because I don't suppose there are actually that many people working at Audible. Um, but they are, they are rattled. Um, in a recent leaked recording of an internal meeting at Audible, an employee asked CEO Bob Carrigan why the company was in fear of its competition. Carrigan said it's hard to ignore what Spotify's doing. This came weeks after Audible announced it would lay off 5% of its workforce. In December, Spotify also announced plans for layoffs, affecting 17% of its workforce. Yeah, and we, we, we reported a couple of weeks ago, didn't we, that Spotify weren't doing brilliantly at the moment. So, Right, OK. Well, look, some com- there's, it's, um, opacity is the word here. There's absolutely no 
clarity at all as to what's really going on. However, we have our own figures that we can talk about. Yeah, so... We're not full clarity no, either, no. to be fair. So every month I work out our author royalties, um, which includes audio royalties. Yeah. And I was doing that just two or three days ago. And one of our books, I noticed, had um, increased its monthly earnings by... Now, if I'm correct, I think it is around 800%. Yes. Um, an increase of 800%. So obviously the figure stood out. Well, that one book represents because normally we say have a we have a baseline figure we normally get for audiobook royalties and it's not huge by any means um and that one book had doubled our monthly income from from royalties in itself yes for all of our titles absolutely so when i saw it i thought that must be a mistake (laughs) i just thought you know, because you sometimes you get spikes if there's been a book bub or a chirp deal or in in the case of audio, a book bub in case of ebook, you know, you do see spikes in sales. Yeah. But there was nothing that we knew of that would suddenly increase the sales of this particular book or any any of our books in yeah. audio in that month. So I, I just I, I could go down a little bit into detail and all I could see was that it was Spotify. Yeah. Well, so we ought to clarify, and we've talked about this before, but we do distribute, um, we've got two tiers of our audiobooks. The ones that we've produced ourselves and distributed ourselves go through Find Away Voices, which was bought out by Spotify last year, and uh, or the possibly even the year before that, actually. But anyway, it's, it's been bought out by Spotify, and so therefore our assumption is that some of our titles will get, end up in this um offer yeah and and maybe that's happened we don't yeah, know yeah it might be and the other books that we've got we've um, sold the rights to to a few of our titles to scribed through um, a rights agency that we we uh, work with so it, it it's a double thing but yeah in terms of the ones we actually have put up yeah it was an increase i mean it's not going to make us rich at all no 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 it's not even going to fill the car no but a few it, more coffees than normal but that's it right <laughs> But it was a significant percentage increase, is what we're saying. Yeah, I did so, have great pleasure in telling the author in question about it. Right. So, could could it be that Spotify are good news? And maybe I was overly cynical. It could be. I mean, wouldn't it be wonderful if that happened to more For of our once. books? Or this book consistently? Yeah. Um, happy days, as far as I'm concerned. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, uh, we'll monitor that situation. Keep you informed, of course, here on the Hopcast Book Show. But let's get to our guest now. And uh, Tinkerbell plays with a cork on the floor, <laughs> showing off her hunting instincts. And she's playing sort of football. Oh, she's hilarious. Um, anyway, Tinkerbell, just uh, let me finish this introduction. Roger A. Price, former police inspector with Lancashire Police and the National Crime Squad, uh, has an amazing back catalogue of things to talk about and write about I suppose yeah but he's been very very careful not to draw too much on his own personal experience you know because he doesn't want to give away operational information but with that knowledge of his career he's written a series of thrillers and uh, he's uh, establishing himself as one of the the, the modern uh, masters of the genre and uh, it's great to have had an opportunity to... <laughs> I'm sorry. You're distracted Tink- by a hunting cat, aren't I you? I am, I am. It's very hard to keep my you know, eye on the ball and what I'm trying to say with Tinkerbell charging around the, the floor of the living room here. After a cork. After a cork. She's very cute. 
Anyway, yes, yeah, so we did so, speak to Roger. We did. Let's speak to Roger A. Price. Well, it's delightful to be joined by Roger A. Price, thriller author and former police officer. Thanks for joining us on the Hobcast Book Show. Thank you so much for the invite. Well, good morning to you from sunny Preston. Well, not quite so sunny at the moment, but uh, from Preston anyway. Yeah, and yeah. When, when I listened to the weather forecast, they were saying that, you know... Snow, hopefully. No, 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 no. no sort of uh, high winds from the north. Uh, moving southwards with heavy rain. So oh, deep uh, joy. pretty standard fare for this time of year. Yeah, please don't send them down. <laughs> you know, I'm getting so fed up putting the same fence panel back in again and again and again. It's, with us, it's the bins. Is the it? bins right. fall over and all the cans go everywhere. So. Oh, what a nightmare. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is. But um, if you're writing, you know, dark Lancastrian noir, sometimes <laughs> you need a sort of the atmosphere to be reflected and you're getting that. On, a, on an almost daily basis at the moment. Yeah, there's plenty. Of, uh, that's probably why I write my best stuff during winter. I never really thought about it before, but yeah, very true. That is interesting, actually. So you, do you think true, you, you write your best stuff during the winter months when it's dark I'm, and gloomy? I'm far more productive during winter. Why is that, do you think? Is it just like you're an outdoor body when it's like nice well, weather? or Probably part, part of that, I think. There's less distractions. But, yeah, but maybe you're right about, so, you know, maybe subconsciously the, the mood thing is there, isn't it? You know, it's always in the background, perhaps uh, driving you a little bit, yeah? Yeah. But there it's you go. Would like to know anyone else? <laughs> but it's amazing, isn't it? What influences come into you when you're writing, when you're not, especially in that first draft writing, which is, I, I, I love that. It's so all-consuming, isn't it? Um, you, you live and breathe the story, don't you? Mm. And all sorts of influences come into you, and then probably the weather is, you know, it's part of it, especially when you write dark, gritty uh, crime thrillers like I do. <laughs> <laughs> this particularly but, gritty book, it must have been about winter, you know. Uh, yeah. I mean, take us through that first draft process then. Um, how oh, long would you oh. normally spend on it? I mean, they, they always say, don't they? There's the sort of two main camps, isn't it? There's the plotters and, and the pantsers. And I'm probably more of a pantser than a plotter, though. Bit of bit of both. I'll probably start off with a a fairly loose skeleton of a synopsis of where I'm where I want to go and and where it where it should should end up, but very, very uh stripped back. Uh, which then allows, isn't it, for the creative process to take over and you put as you put flesh on the bones, you go off in all sorts of right angles. But but what I do find it it just takes over my every wake well not just my every waking moment, my subconscious I mean, and this is going to sound a bit daft, this, but if I reach a, a, a difficult plot point or an area where I'm struggling with, um, I've sort of trained myself a little bit to go to sleep. You're, you're going to laugh at this, but it's, it actually works for me anyway. So to go to sleep with this particular problem in my head, thinking about it over and over and over. You know, what would such a character do about this this situation they're now, they're now in? And the number of times when I wake up with that, with a, you know, the answer there, clear in my mind it's remarkable that's incredible i, I want i want to use that, that in, in, in life though that would be great wouldn't it <laughs> you could use it for everything every problem you come across like oh where have i put my yeah. son's passport i'll go to bed <laughs> you know i've never thought about widening that to just general living but it's a good idea but the number of times they get up sometimes it could be three in the morning to visit the bathroom you know and they go oh god right right you're <laughs> rushing to you're rushing to the into your office you know like a mad sort of uh, excerpt from a Monty Python uh, sketch, trying to get it all down, you know. Yeah, I can picture you now, like sort of little 
cartoon sweats coming off your head. <laughs> <laughs> Before it goes, yeah. So but then do you get back to sleep though? Once you've done, so you've written it, you've typed mm. it all down. Do you then think, yeah. right, I'm fine now. I can go back to bed and sleep some more. Well, well, you sort of you're still thinking about the afterthought of it, don't you? And but then you think, well, I've got it down now. I can forget about that now, and then I sort of go back off. But but it, it takes over my, I don't know about you guys, but my, my whole life when I'm doing that first draft, and I, I, it's very, very, how can I put it? It's very tiring. It, it can be really hard work, but very rewarding as well. And mm. it could be anywhere, can't you? In the middle of a supermarket or whatever, you know. And oh, quick, get your dictaphone out quick, you know, because without that dictaphone, I'll, I'll be gone. You know, things go into the head and they go out the other side within seconds, don't they? You know, so yeah. you've got to capture it while you can. But yeah, so I love that all-consuming first draft stuff, you know, and just get it down, get the story down. Don't worry about structure or. Or, or you know, or sort of tightening your grammar or whatever. Just get it down on paper, and then you can play with it afterwards, can't you? And get it right on your Absolutely. I mean, I think it almost feels when you're in the flow and in that creative process. I mean, it's a bit like falling in love, isn't it? Oh, <laughs> in, in, in that all-consuming way. Uh, very, very well put, that Adrian. Very well put because you, then you get to know your characters better, aren't you? And they develop during the course of the of the novel, do they not? You know. You can't sort of be everything at the beginning of a novel. And I must admit, one of my little bugbears, I, I, I don't particularly like it when authors fully describe a character at the beginning. I find that a little bit, if I'm honest, lazy writing. Mm, I agree. If, if somebody walks into a room you've not met before, you don't think to yourself in your subconscious, <laughs> oh, here is such a person, and they're dressed in this coat and that colour, and these are the shoes and all the rest of it. it it's false for me. You know, you, you sort of bring it in bit by bit. And they say, for example, the blue cardigan happens to be significant for the plot later on. Well, you can bring it in sideways, can't you? You know, you, mm. well, the cardigan is similar to the one I used to have or, or whatever. Yeah. You know, and, and do it in a more nuanced and subtle way. Um, and I try to do that because I do. I, it's one of my bugbears. I hate it when I read it, read it for pleasure. And I see these full descriptions like somebody's bio, you know, on, on, on one page. Yeah, no, that's very common, and I think it's something that we push back on quite a lot. Um, do you? That's interesting. Yeah, we do because there's do. no need for it at all. Like you say, hints of what they look like. Well, if you think if you think about, say, the way that Mick Heron would approach, yes, introducing a character, it'll be some tiny detail that tells you the rest of the picture that you need to know. That's um, fabulous writing when you when you can achieve that, isn't mm. it? Oh yeah, yeah, and and I think that he's one of the best at it. Um, mm. In that, in the sort of thriller genre, uh, as it stands, I mean, you know, clearly there's a lot of humour in there, a dark humour that he yes. he goes with, and it sort of comes from a from a sort of semi satirical angle, I think, in 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 some ways. But nonetheless, when it comes to introducing any character, it'll be a micro detail or something they say, and you get everything from it. And yeah. you also want your reader to they've got a brain and they can yeah. make deductions themselves about a person, a character through the hints that you give. You know, they don't need to be spoon fed. They don't. And bouncing on that, uh, that, Rebecca, that's a very, very valid point, because I also like to leave bits missing from a character's sort of overall persona, shall we say, and allow the reader to fill in the blanks their own way. And then that makes the reading process for the reader very personal. Mm. You know, they're they're the, they're sort of uh, my latest books, Martin Drake. Their sort of opinion of Martin Drake, or one person's opinion of Martin Drake, will be slightly different to somebody else's. 
and that makes the emotional involvement i think greater for the reader mm. it becomes more personal they know they fill in the blanks themselves and they know the character the way they see it and mm. isn't that wonderful yeah and then they feel that they've played a part in in in, in a way in the writing of the book the because they've got their own version of it absolutely i think that buying is essential mm. Mm. Now, you mentioned Martin Draker, DS Martin Draker, your yep. most recent series trilogy out now. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because quite a lot of authors writing in within sort of uh, with police characters will make the jump to making their main character a DCI, a detective yeah. chief inspector. <laughs> and when you retired, you were a DI, detective That's inspector. Right. That's right. But yeah. you've gone for the people who actually do most of the investigating and and, and kind of the out of the office stuff, which is a DS. Absolutely. Um, Best job in the world, a DS. <laughs> is it? Yeah, because you, you're operational. You're running a team, but you're operational totally. With the DI, you're driving a desk half the time. Mm. And you have, you know, it's more of a strategic, strategic overview of the way things are going. And you might, you know, say, let's look at this area, let's do that. But from a day-to-day sort of, you know, perspective, the DSs are the ones who are running the job, you know. And uh, But you're right about the, the rank thing. People, don't, for some reason, think it adds gravitas to the character. Well, I don't think it does. TV particularly do it, don't they? Yeah, yes. yeah all the time. Yeah, you know, there's always uh, DCI this and superintendent that, and, you know, and it's not it's not real, really. It's not, not accurate. <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of your, I mean, I know that there are so many things about your career you can't talk about because it was covert a lot of it it was a lot of it yeah yeah i can, I can talk in general terms yeah yeah so uh, i mean what so how long would would say in your 30-year police career would you have been a ds at that front front end stuff running a team and and um you know getting getting your hands dirty if you like i think i did i, was, I think it was a ds i enjoyed it so much i was i did it for too long really i think i did it for about 13 years mm. like that. and i was on the cid drug squad uh, National Crime Squad, so I did quite a few different things. Uh, intelligence, running informants. Oh God, running informants. That that was fun. Not. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they come with with a lot of baggage. Um, so yeah, that, they were the best years, I think. Really. It's, I mean, it's years. interesting you mentioned informants because, I mean, most police procedurals you pick up, there's always an informant somewhere in there, or maybe a, a handful. Yeah. Um. um my favourite ever police informant in any... You TV... have a favourite? Yeah, in any TV cop show was always Huggy Bear on Starsky and Hutch. Oh, I... oh, oh, yeah. Huggy Bear? What a great thinking... character, yeah. Yeah, well, I'm thinking of, you know, because David Soul passed away a couple of weeks ago. Did, and he, yes. uh, I, I had the good fortune of spending some time with Antonio Fargas, who played Huggy Bear in the original wow. series. Brilliant. Um, and uh, just to explain, Rebecca, Huggy Bear was... A... <laughs> basically a nightclub owner. I remember watching bar, it. Yeah. And he was, you know, sort of a, a sort of super fly. Yeah, I, I do remember it. Character. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So well, I'm just, a, for those who, who, who perhaps don't remember, but, you know, that was a very, very sort of um, out there kind of version of an informer. What what, what sort <laughs> of people are we talking about when we're talking about running informants in, 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 in your patch and in and, and your career? Informers are strange. They're a strange breed. Um and I know the moral question about whether the police should be paying criminals for information, and it's it is it's a good debate to have. Um, but on the on the plus side of it, 
these are people who've grown up on the same estates as these criminals who become master criminals, if I want to want of a better expression. And they know them. They know them intimately. And they're always going to give you the best intelligence, mm. albeit they'll come with an awful lot of baggage along the way. Uh, and they come into various categories. The, the most common one probably is a, is a petty criminal who is in trouble, he's been charged with various offences, and he's desperately trying to get a reduction of his sentence. Mm. So he wants to give information so that the judge gets a secret letter in private saying what a good boy he's been and please don't be quite so harsh on him or her. Uh, and that's one of the main areas where they, they come in. So they're coming in with a particular agenda and you have to be aware of that. They're feeding their agenda and, and not yours. Um, and there are other ones that just, uh, they call it uh, the James Bond syndrome. That's the phrase used in, in handler training because there's those who just love the buzz of doing it. Um, they don't do it necessarily for money because they don't get paid an awful lot, but, you know, contrary to what you might, you know, you might think. They don't get paid much at all um, considering the risks that they run. So there's those, those, those are two main countries. Those just who actually get a That's interesting. Off it. Yeah. <laughs> but they're very, 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 very uh, hard work because you sign up an informant and um, there's a contract you have to sign with them. And you have a duty of care to them, which is right and proper, uh, to make sure they're protected and that nothing is acted upon that will directly lead back to them. You know, if they give some information and only they're the only person who knows it, mm. then the police have got a responsibility to go out there and find, they know where they're looking now, look in the right area, find the, the evidence from a different direction that takes it away from, from the informant, things like that. So it's quite strict in the way that the, the things are run. Um, but they they take they take the duty of care thing too far. They think it means like looking after their entire life. <laughs> so the, the kids get evicted from school or they're being evicted from the house because they haven't paid the rent and they come come to you for help, you know, on it all. So they're just a nightmare in that, in that regard. Mm, oh, that's, that's yeah, quite a lot of baggage then. <laughs> oh, yeah, oh, oh, and, and and they play tricks as well. You know, I'll give a quick example of boy to death with war stories, but we, we had one meeting with uh, an informant and um, they always turned up in a tatty vehicle, being an old van or whatever, you know. And this particular day he turned up in this really nice, smart-looking motor, you know, mm. which obviously caught our attention. So uh, after he, the meeting was over and he left and he passed on his information, we were sat in a pub car park somewhere in the middle of nowhere, uh, we checked the, the registration number of the vehicle he had arrived in on the police national computer. And the, and the vehicle had been nicked half an hour earlier. I mean, he was nicked half an hour later, I should add. <laughs> we never worked with him again. But the cheeky so-and-so turns up to meet his police handlers in a stolen car. That is, that is almost brazen, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> brazen or dumb, yeah. yeah I mean, that's extraordinary. Yeah. Um, so creating a character like Martin Draco, I mean, how... how um, and this was some way into your writing career. Yes. What was the genesis of of wanting to to focus on on the on that character? I always try and have a, a strong male lead protagonist and a strong female lead protagonist. I try and mm. run both, uh, and all my books you'll find will have those because I think uh, strong female protagonists are underrepresented in in British crime uh, fiction at the moment, if I'm honest. So I wanted somebody who was flawed and I wanted a strong, sassy female who was, who was going to put him right a lot of the time and 
but she hasn't got the experience he has, so he's trying to look after her. And that's a yin and yang, I think, between the two main characters in, in the uh, Drake series. Um, the publisher chose the name Draker. You could have you could have chosen either of the main characters really. Um, but but I try and what I'm very careful against. I don't base any of my characters on on real people. Mm. You, you know you worry you worry about obviously the the issues with libel if somebody rep- you know, recognizes themselves or somebody who they believe it to be themselves. Yeah, you, know, you could be you could be libel. Um, but a number of people have come up to me, you know, ex colleagues, all say, Oh, yeah, so and so, yeah, yeah, you based that on such a body, didn't you? And I'm going, not, not really, no. Oh, yeah, you did, you did, you know. But what I do do, I, I create a composite. So I will take little, you know, personas from various people and sort of mash them up together and see, see where it goes, you know. Mm. Mm. Do, do you miss the, uh, I guess, you know the the opportunity to observe people in their rawest form yeah when you're doing a job like that i mean that yeah. in itself is a buzz isn't it well it is and it, perhaps a lazy researcher because all those wonderful crime writers who haven't had the experiences that, that i have had in the police they have to have to go out and do all the research you know it was just such hard work and uh i do do some research as well i should add but uh yeah, but it's 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 a bank of uh, knowledge there that you can use, and I, I quite like dripping bits in. I mean, up till Inside Threat, which actually is based on a real event, which triggered that one off. Um, but up till then, I've never all my all my books have been completely made up. But I do like sprinkling in little bits of uh, you know reality to sort of hopefully make the narrative sort of really sparkle and shine. Um, and I can give you an example of that if you want. I, I, I was once running yeah. a, an under, an, under, I was running an under drugs undercover unit, where the cops, especially trained undercover officers, they go out as addicts basically in the drug den areas, uh, and make themselves available to the drug dealers who then sell them drugs, uh, and then that's all recorded and sort of evidence. So down the road, when the drug dealer is arrested, the evidence is is irrefutable. Um, and as you might imagine, some of these sort of uh, poorer estates where a lot of this drug dealing goes on, you know, the, the honest, decent people who have to live in that environment is a hell on earth. And they get so used to seeing the cops turn up perhaps to a drugs warrant. And, and whether they find any drugs or they don't, it's always speculative drug warrants. Um, regardless, it might not be much. And the people will be back on the streets hours later sometimes. And it's, it's this merry-go-round of, of, of not being very effective and trying but failing. Uh, and that must be so disheartening for people who live in the area. So when the operation was called Nimrod that I ran, so when a Nimrod raid went down, you knew these people were going away for three or four years because mm. you've got you know good evidence of, 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 of considerable dealing of Class A drugs in that area over a period of time. So what I used to do when the raids went down, I used to sort of put a suit on and pretend to be uh, a normal DI again, and I would go out on the knock for a little bit and just try and reassure people, you know, and just say, you know, this problem isn't coming back this time, you know, because you get so disheartened. And I went to one address, and the curtains were shut. And it's during the day, obviously. And I was a bit concerned whether I should knock or not, thinking, well, there's a bit of bereavement. You just don't know, do you? But I knocked anyway. And this this old gentleman answered the door, and I identified myself, and he invited me in. We sat down, we had a bit of a chat, and I told him that these people opposite him were never coming back. I've heard that before, and all the rest of it, and I explained 
why they weren't coming back. And he was obviously mightily relieved. And that was very enjoyable to see that. Mm. And I said, right, I'll, I'll leave you in peace now. So I got up to leave. And he said, can you do me a favour, please, before you go, officer? I said, yeah, yes, certainly. You know, anything. What is it? He said, will you open the curtains? I said, yeah, sure. I said, I must admit, I wonder why they were closed. But he said, I closed them five years ago. And now I can open them. And it, it really touched me, that. And it just doesn't that just show how horrible it must be must be to live in that area now i've got to tell you i've used that i think twice now in, in my novels because that short little story you can abridge it even shorter is so impactive of what it must be like for people living in that area but, yes uh, it speaks speaks volumes doesn't it just that yeah, little question and that little act that you did it's wow. still <laughs> my breath away yeah that's that's astonishing and actually if you we're in a position where you're reflecting on a career like yours. Um, a moment like that can justify so much of, you know, and actually be something you can ha- hold on to and be proud of. Mm. Because I think, yeah. I think modern jobs, um, and I include my own in this, uh, <laughs> in say. previous career, you know, there's only the little glints, those little moments of real human contact are the ones that really count for anything. Well, I've never forgot it. So you can see yeah, what impression yeah. it had yeah. on me. And in terms of those officers who were who were going undercover, I mean, it's, I mean, TV sort of glamorizes it, and you know, we've got Stephen Graham and Speaking of him, yeah, he's, he's great, he's great. Though, I do like him. Oh, he's a brilliant actor. But <laughs> Line of Duty, you know, he's he's in in a uh, organized I'd crime. I've seen now, though. <laughs> <laughs> organized crime organization or whatever they're called, um, and goes undercover, and you know goes a bit loco doing it yeah um i mean that must have been a, a an, an issue for some of your colleagues that you were sending in presumably younger colleagues who were posing as drug users uh that must be horrendously difficult especially the fear of being un, unraveled oh a, a constant fear i mean the the, the training is very good obviously and, and not everybody will get through that training uh, it's, it's it's a very hard pass um, but, but once um, somebody is uh, deployed, there's a lot of support around them. You know, they, they have a, a welfare officer or a cover officer, whatever phrase you want to use, that looks after them uh, and looks after them when they're deployed. Um, every so often, it used to be every six months, I'm not sure what it is now, uh, they have to be evaluated by a psychologist. They have to pass that test. And that's quite hard. And the psychologist has got any concerns about them they won't give the ticket back. So they then mm. can't be deployed until, you know, there's a plan in place to sort of get around whatever the issue was. And then only when they get written off, yeah, you're okay to go now. Can they go back out uh, and carry on? So there's as much wrap around them as you can, but that doesn't take away that daily feeling you alluded to there of being discovered, uh, you know, or being suspected and how they have to deal with that, of course. And sometimes it can come in from sight, you know, where, where you're not expecting it. You know, you might spend a lot of time uh, building a relationship with a criminal and you're accepted and you, you, you're trusted and all the rest of it, then out of the blue, somebody who hasn't appeared on the scene for months suddenly turns up who's well-known to the criminal and says, who's this? Don't like looking at you. Who are you? I don't, I, I don't know. You're not a cop. You know, and all of a sudden, so you get these sort of from left or right flanks, not expected coming in. It's how they... And how they deal with it, and they and they are unsung heroes, you know. They really, I know, I know they get some bad press sometimes, um, 
and there was there was there was an issue a couple of years ago with the, the Met, yeah, with a unit they had going into um, demonstrators and all the rest and of it. And having relationships with, oh, I mean, for me, that this should never have been, this should never have been deployed in that situation. That unit shouldn't have existed. But one of the problems the Met has, and probably still does, is it's too big. Mm. So the governance is is flawed because of that. Um, it's okay for me up in Lancashire in charge of all undercover operations. You know, I've got a handle on everything. But that the Met is so vast that there's, there's sort of all these different tiers and one not knowing what the other's doing. And I think that was part of the problem there. Um, but it, it, it is, it is um, they are unsung heroes, the good ones, and, you know, 99% are. Amazing. And, I mean, you're talking about the Met. I mean, I think one of the things that, that comes through from observing from afar is that it's one of these organizations like like the BBC, dare I say it, where yeah. you spend more time fighting other units than you do doing the day job. Yeah, you haven't got enough poli- time for the day because job. Because of the nature of the politics and the jealousy. The politics. And the I think, yeah, I think well, all forces have that, you know, even smaller ones. The, the politics goes on and the backbiting and the people trying to jump on other people's shoulders all the time. So, I mean, as a, as a DI in charge of my, my unit, you know, I spent half my day doing the deal with the politics, justifying the department, showing its results, cost effectiveness, and all the rest of it. And some of that, don't get me wrong, is quite necessary and right and proper. But sometimes it can go a little bit too far, you know, and take take away too much time. Time consuming, time suckage, as I call it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's talk. That. Let's talk about your, your your writing arc, if you like, in terms of your career. So, at what yes. stage did you start writing? Well, I had my first rejection at the age of 11. Oh, really? Oh, what was that for? Um, it was, a, it was a, an English essay. We had to, this is so far removed from what I write now, let me tell you. <laughs> but it, it was a typical uh, English uh, assignment where we had to imagine that we were a leaf in a tree and it was autumn time. And the leaf breaks off from the branch as it does and it drifts down to the earth. Now, you can imagine the leaf is now seeing the world in a completely different perspective than it's ever been used to on its journey down to the down to the ground. And you have to write a, a short piece on that. So I did. And I had to stand in front of the class and read it out, which I did. And I got uh, detention and lines and God knows what other punishments I was given at the time because the teacher would not believe I'd written it. They had copied it out of the book. No. Now, the, now, that was a massive backhanded compliment, was it not? Yes. At the tender age of 11. I felt so wrong that they did that. You know, I'd, love, I'd love it. I'd love it if I could find that poem now. It'd be great, wouldn't it? I'd have it on the yeah. Uh, that prose, sorry. Um, but yeah, but that's so scarred by that experience. Uh, I did nothing then for about 30 years. I mean, the um, injustice. Oh, <laughs> I feel your pain. That's yeah. awful. Miscarriage of justice there. <laughs> But Maybe that's apart, why you went into justice. <laughs> well, possibly, yeah, to get justice, yeah. <laughs> but so, see, there's a 30-year gap. So what well, came yeah, next joke, then? And why did apart, you suddenly take the pen again? <laughs> I've always, uh, joking apart, I've been, been a bit light-hearted with that, but I've always had the desire to write. I think uh, I think it's just in you, isn't it? Mm. Um, and I'm sure you can empathise with this, you two, but it's just, it's just this annoying thing that's in you that you want to do um and growing up uh, my father was quite older when he had me i think he was an electrician i think he was his, i was his last shock i think 
I came along <laughs> when he was in his 40s. And uh, during my entire childhood, my dad was writing a book. Um, and, and eventually wrote a very short piece about his, his experiences in the war. But the fact that he was writing a book, I just thought this was magical. You know what I mean? I, and I was enthused to read because of that. And I read it all in the Blight and all, all those wonderful stories. So I always had this desire in me, um, mm. whether it was there before my father was going to write a book or, or not. Or maybe that just added to it. I don't know. But I never found the time to do it. And that's an excuse, isn't it? But I, I didn't. In fact, I started playing around with it more seriously towards the end of my career while I was still serving. Um, and I did a creative writing course at Preston College. And um, I'd, I was on the National Crime Squad then, and I had hair down to my shoulders. I looked like a right mess, you know. And uh, I think I told him it was a bricklayer or something. I didn't tell him what my real job was. Although I must have the nicest hands of any bricklayer, let's be honest. <laughs> they looked a bit closer, they just seen through it. Yeah, like, look at your nails now. You're not a bricklayer. <laughs> Who are you? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, who is this, uh, this liar? Um, and halfway through the course, I got um, I got deployed uh, overseas on an on on undercover operation in, in Bangkok. And I was going there for four or five days. Uh, I was in Comunicado. And I was there for five weeks. So I eventually got back to the UK. And there's a letter from the college binning me off the course, you know. So, as you can imagine, rightly so. So, I went to see the uh, the lecturer and explained to her who I really was and what I was doing. I had to show her my warrant card to convince her because she's looking at me thinking, this, this is not right, you know. Um, so, I was, I, was, I was allowed back on the course and I worked hard to try and catch up what I'd missed. And I, and I passed the course. And whether I should have passed it or not, I'm not sure. I think maybe she was being a little bit kind. But again, that inspired me to have a, have a proper go. Um, and when I, when I left the police, you know, for real. Um, this the kick you out when you're far too young. Top of your game, really. You have to do something else, don't you? Mm. At, uh, at, at sort of early fifties. So I thought, well, I did a, some private work, which I didn't really enjoy, and I thought, well, now's the time to have a go. And that was sort of eleven years ago. So uh, there we are. And how and here how, we are. how do you think you've evolved as a writer? Because I mean, talking to you, you know, earlier in the interview, you were very clear about. The sort of um, you know philosophy in terms of the way you've cast your main characters yeah. for the Draker series, um, and it's you know although you're pantsing to a to a large degree, mm. you have a very clear you know, what comes across is a very clear grip on how you your method and on what you're trying to achieve. But was that the case when you first started you know writing seriously? The the the, the first book by their rules. I wrote that, um, trying to put into into place uh, what I had learned, particularly on structure. Um, I think you're either a storyteller or you're not. And you can learn structure, and structure is so important because it'll be the best story never told if your structure's not right. Um, so you've got to get the structure. I used to always stress on structure, always, always you know, really stress about that to the to some degrees, perhaps to the um, the detriment of the story in some in some ways. In the early days, I try and get yeah. because end of the day, it's a story that matters, but it has to be told correctly in the right structure, point right point of view, and all the rest of it. Um, so I eventually 
came up with what I thought was the the perfect, as far as I can make it, uh, uh, draft of by their rules. I then hired um, um, a literary uh, doctor, they call him now, a literary consultant, to to go through it at some great expense. It wasn't cheap. Which, no, you know, no, these it's not. Aren't. And what came back from that, well, it nearly brought me heart. You know, I spent probably an hour walking around my office, head butting the wall, crying, calling for my mother, all these sort of emotions, <laughs> yeah. before you eventually sit down, calm down, and start going through all the red pen um, constructively. And But I learned so much from that. It was so wrong. It was rubbish. And looking back now, I, even the finished article, I don't want to read that first book, I don't think. Mm. I don't think I do. Because I think I still see things that would make me, you know, go. Ooh! <laughs> um, but that was that was a template for starting me off. I thought, well, let's see how we get on with the first book, and if anybody likes it, then I might write a second one. And, and it got favorable reviews, so I did the second one using the same template. And I probably left the template alone after that. Probably learned structurally what I needed to learn as a starting point. You never stop learning, do you? Ever stop no. learning? No. Um, and you evolve and hopefully you improve as you go along. But yeah, that's how I started. Yeah, that's how the game started for me. That's how I structure, started structuring my work, yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting. I mean, because what's popping into my head is sort of an image of the other arts. So you can probably talk to how, uh, when you're learning how to draw or paint, you know, there are certain things that you have to get down first in terms of, you know, the, the, the fundamentals that you you work over and over and over again so they become natural if it was dance for instance there are certain mm -hmm. moves that you or well i think it applies to any anything any creative yeah creative i think so art, but yeah. i think in writing structure is often forgotten oh yeah i, th I really do and i mean i've got dozens of books upstairs which tell you how to do it well <laughs> you know beat sheets and 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 you yeah. know three act structures to f compare to five act ones or whatever it is or you know if you don't have the major point in 50% of your, you know, 50, the halfway mark of your novel, you've messed up somewhere along the line because that's the point where nothing can ever go back the way it was. But don't you think you can try too yeah. hard sometimes though? Well, I think there is, but I think, I think what, what you're saying is, is that, you know, taking that approach is it gives you the, the building the blocks. Template to work. Through. Yeah. The template. But once you've internalized that template, that's when the really good work comes forward because you can tell the story without having to keep since double checking. Absolutely. That's when the freedom comes to the mind, isn't it? You're not stressing any more over structure. You know what you're doing subliminally to a point and that creates space and room for the creative process to really kick in and come out with a, some of your best lines really, isn't it? Yeah, mm. that, absolutely. That is so, so true. And one of the things I, I remember just to go on, bounce on the back of that, I, I'm a bit of a, pedant of a point of view. Uh, I don't like a thorough voice. Um, I think as much of the story as you can should be told through the characters. Um, and I always try and achieve that. And, and, you know, and you'll find little a thorough voice in, in hopefully in, in, in most of my books, if not all of them. But one thing I was taught when I was doing my creative writing uh, course, and it's always stuck with me, talking about point of view. The, the lecturer said, Pick a, a book you enjoy uh, from an author you enjoy, read it, and every time you put it down, make a, 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 you know, a note on the page where you've put it down. And don't consider what, why you've done that, just do it. And at the end of the book, go back through all those little notations. And apart from times like you're falling asleep, 
or there's a knock on the door, look at where the story was from a structural point of view position when you start reading it. And she said, I'll tell you now that nine times out of 10, you'll put the book down when you're in an thorough voice. When you're not reading a passage, it's through the character's own uh, eyes and, uh, and feelings. And my God, it was true. And I learned then that that disconnect you get as a reader from when you're in the character's point of view, eyes and ears and, and feelings from a thorough voice, which is obviously removed, isn't it, from, from mm. the character. And so you're less emotionally uh, invested in the story. So uh, for me, a book that has too much a thorough voice is like a brick wall. It stops me getting intimate with the story. That's really interesting. I've never heard that before, but I'm going to do that. Yes. I'm going to do that test. Give it a test. I probably, probably, probably completely rubbish. I'm talking here, but it works. <laughs> no, 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 no. I think, I think there's a lot of, lot of truth in this. Um, and actually, if, if I were to sort of characterise when we're looking on the rare occasions we're open for submissions nowadays, um, that's often the thing that, that. You know, I might point out certain other things that have persuaded me not to publish a book or suggest that we publish it. Sure. Um, but actually, you're right. It, it's often those bits that where the author is trying to show off their skill as, you know, the connective. Yeah. Rather than actually staying in the framework of the characters that you've created. Yeah, and, and you're back to telling and showing it, aren't you? So, so yeah, much yeah. To, to a degree, yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's... Negative space. That that really comes out. And um, that's a really very, very good point. I mean, you know, the beauty of these interviews is that we always learn something. And it's amazing, you know, collecting together, as we have over 159 episodes, as this will be. We should write a book about how to write based on what everyone's told us. Well, <laughs> you know... Be a bestseller. You could have a chapter each, couldn't you? This could be the Roger A. Price chapter. And <laughs> well, that's a, that's a true, uh, that's a wonderful insight. And um, thank you for that. We really appreciate it. So, in terms of where you are now with your career, um, yeah, this trilogy is out now. And yeah. um, what, what are your plans for the for for, for your next work? Uh, I'm currently going through the edits uh, for the next one, which is called the Cabal. That's a standalone. That's not a, a Drake uh, trilogy. I'll have to speak uh, to uh, Richard to see if he wants any more Drake ones. I'm not sure he does at this stage. So, But I've got a standalone coming. That's under contract, so that'll be coming out some stage this year. Um, I've also been learning or trying to learn over the last two, well, several years, really, how to write script as well. Oh, yes. Uh, so I've not sold any, 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 anything yet, but I've come very close with a couple of TV dramas. So I'm trying to go down that route as well. Uh, yes, you you've got representation in that field, haven't you? Yes, I have. Yes, yeah. Um, in fact, in fact, uh, um, the last thing I tried was um, was for an internship with ITV, uh, which I was also in reason to mention this or not. Um, and I got shortlisted. I didn't get. I didn't get the script. Didn't get there. But the um, the drama department at Manchester said that the shortlisters was was so good. They wanted to encourage and keep hold of those. So they've put together a, a sort of webinar to try and encourage these uh, emerging voices, as they call it. Uh, and I'm, I've been invited on one of those. So that, that's actually tomorrow. That's um, good. So, yeah. yeah, well, it might lead, it might open, open a few doors, who knows? Um, so it might lead somewhere. Uh, so that's the other side of my business as well. I mean, I would love to get one of my own works adapted as well, either by myself mm. or by, by, by uh, an existing 
established screenwriter. That would be, I mean, that would, be, that would just be the cherry of the cake. Can you imagine that? Watching somebody speak your own words, I just can't yeah. imagine anything better than that, can you? Well, yeah. actually, one one of our authors is a, a scriptwriter, Rob Gittins. Yes. So he does EastEnders and um, Casualty oh, wow. he's done. And... He's established then, yeah. Yeah, we'll put you in touch at some point because <laughs> Rob is, you know, is a true veteran because he's the longest-serving EastEnders writer there is with wow, thirty that's, odd years. That's some, that's some accolade, then, isn't it? That? It is, it is. Um, but uh, you know, just while we're on that subject, then, um, what are the the key differences that stand out for you in terms of the way you approach writing a screenplay versus your novels? Because, yeah. Uh, I think there's a lot of misconceptions on it. I mean, you know, for some people, they're in their minds, and I'm, I'm probably one of these people who thinks that, well, it's just a bunch of dialogue, isn't it? Um... <laughs> well, yeah, it's great question. Great question. That I love writing dialogue, uh, and, and for me, crime novels should have it towards half dialogue. Certainly, forty percent should be dialogue. I think. Um, so it was partly because of that attracted me to try and learn script and did an online course and whatever. Um, but to learn the differences or the major differences, like you just described, um, I got myself signed up as an extra. Uh, and I went, I was on a, an episode of Cold Feet. Oh, wow. Which one uh, will find it? <laughs> it was the one where they ended up in, uh, uh, it was all around Old Trafford, and they ended up in a, a pub called the Trafford Pub. Yep, know it, yeah. Uh, and uh, I spent about nine, was it nine, was it 11? It could have been 11 hours in there. It's a long time anyway. Ended up with about 25 seconds of film, you know, but there you go. Um, so this is James think... Nesbitt. Yeah. Um, and uh... oh, what's his face? In yeah. fact, the bloke. You know, you get the John memories Thompson. on. You get the, uh, John Thompson was there, yeah. Yeah, you they used to the... just go and have a drink, didn't they? Yeah, but they went, but they used to go to the, the one of the pubs in town in Deansgate. Yeah. Uh, but this one was is the the near the near the ground. Yeah, it's quite a rough rough looking pub actually. I've it been is. in once or twice. Yeah, it, it, it very much is. And James Bolland was there as well. Oh yeah. Uh, and um, the um, what I learnt from that was massive because in chatting with the this you know the the floor manager as well, the scene descriptions, which is the start of your any any bit of script, you scene description, then you've got your action, you've got your dialogue. And the scene descriptions are very, very sparse. Now, as a novelist, you automatically put far too much into a scene description because you're writing it like a, a novelist would write. So you have to learn not to do that. Yeah. Uh, and I was, I, I was told by people there that if you do that and you submit a script, it straight away smacks of amateurism and you're going straight in the bin before they mm. even consider it. And they also consider it an arrogance because it's the, it's the director's job to, to dress the scene, set the scene as he sees fit. And often, certainly in TV, such types uh, timescales exist. They're doing it on the hoof. Yeah. And this is how clever these people are. You know, they've got this wonderful ability to just do it as they're doing it. Um, so they want a very sparse two-line, you know, two-sentence, two three-sentence uh, scene setting, and they will then widen that and dress it as they see fit. So I learned a lot from that because I looked at what I was doing up till then, and all my scene settings were far, far too in depth and far too long, so I got rid of all that. So I learned an awful lot. I think that's a key, one of the key differences between novel writing and script writing. Fascinating. Interesting. Yeah. Fascinating. I was right. thinking how with, with Rob Gittins, it's almost like the other way around. So he, his career has been um, writing script, and then he switched to novels, and, got you. and so whether he 
then realized he had to put more in. I don't know more possibly, into the yeah, scene setting because he, he his books are very dialogue heavy, aren't they? And very yeah. character driven. Which they, which they um, will be, won't they? That's his skill, isn't it? Mm. Absolutely. No, it's brilliant. I mean, it, the, the way he sort of switches the head in the heads of all the characters is yeah very good. Anyway, yes. Right. Well, okay. Look, Roger, it's been a fabulous interview. Thank you so much. And oh, thank you for the takeaway. Thoroughly enjoyed it. The the glints of gold, but now it is time for, uh, well, what can I say? That was a sigh of. <laughs> I don't know. You're building I mean, the you tension know, I hate... now, aren't you? When an interview goes well, the last thing I wanted to do is be ruined by your random question. How could you say that? How could you say that? That's just. Okay, well, you know, let, we could darken the tone. Let's see. <laughs> Rebecca. Okay, Rebecca, I'm ready. <laughs> he's quaking. Okay, he's quaking. Rebecca's random. Question. Well, it actually is related to some of our discussion because my random question this week is, um, what have you learned in the last week? Tell me something you've learned in the last week that you didn't know before. <laughs> okay, yeah. Going through the edits for the Cabal, which I'm doing at the moment, I hadn't realised how often I'd used the word guy. Guy? Guy? G-U-Y? Yeah, G-U-Y. And to how my, many times did you count? To, to my horror. To my horror. I've, this has been gone through this manuscript probably about six times now. To my horror, I discovered that I used the word guy 88 times. In an, that's, in quite, an, that's, that's not bad. Yeah. In an 85,000-word book, which horrified the editor. But I always thought, I don't use it that much. You know, and you go through these things, don't you? Don't, I don't say that often. Guy, do I? Do I? And you look, and it's everywhere. And then yeah. you see it, don't but it, you? But it's one of those words that could hide. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Stephen King talks about, you know, in terms of, we've gone over this a number of times in the in the podcast in the past, but attributions, yeah. you know, that a reader won't notice how many times you say said, so-and-so said, he said, she said, whatever. Yeah. But you do when you're narrating it because it's, it sort of stands out like a, you know, like a yeah, punch yeah. in the face almost. Yes, I'm sure. When, as a narrator. So, um, you know, Different things slip through, don't they? Everybody has that, though, don't they? I think everybody has... A filter or... No, no, not a filter. I was going to say they have their their words or phrases that they just naturally use in their writing. And it takes an editor to say, look, you say, but then, 623 times. Yeah, I mean, the the number of thens you find and wases and all sorts, souls, I mean, the list goes on. But obviously this particular phrase or word jarred with this particular editor, and I'm not saying it would jar... The same with any reader, but if you can change it and make you make your prose, you know, more nuanced, then it's yeah. going to be for the for the better, isn't it? So, yeah. that's the first thing. It's probably not the best example of something I've learned this week. But it's, <laughs> well, I'll tell you what best. I've learned this week, and I I shared it over the d- the dinner table last night. Um, apparently in Russia, <laughs> there's like a sort of um, uh, it's a myth, I suppose. That uh, your intelligence comes through the maternal line, not the paternal line. Now, you can see why I thought this was an important thing to <laughs> share with my children, especially because my middle son had just told me he got an A star for an essay. So I was, well, did you know in Russia? <laughs> I don't know if it's true or not. I'd like it to be true, obviously, but no that's what I've learned in the last week. <laughs> wow. Have you learned me. anything in the last week? Ah. <sighs> Do you know, I really, I am battling away. I mean, I, I'm sure there are lots of little micro things that that I have learnt um, over the last. You learnt how to diagnose a car. 
Yes. <laughs> well, I don't know if I have. I mean, it hasn't been endorsed by someone who actually knows what's happened to the car. But <laughs> no, I no problem. No, it's my car. It was mm. it was uh, making a funny noise and it was failing. It was struggling to accelerate when I came off the M6 mm. the other day. Yes, I did, I, I did learn something and, and I put it in play. So I learned it a couple of weeks ago, um, but I've started using it. So that's, I guess, you can learn something. What's know, that then? It's body posture while I'm narrating. And, oh. Um, oh. But, so I went to, uh, two or three weeks back, I went to London to do a course on the American general accent, which is mm-hmm. the, you know, received pronunciation of America. And um what i needed to do to get work in in the states as a narrator and that was fine but I, when i was reading passages to the group uh the the course leader who's an actress said do you realize your posture's really weird when you read <laughs> and it was um, you know this doesn't work for our listeners but you can see this on our zoom call so yeah. essentially mm-hmm. rather than being sort of fairly upright and into the microphone i am like <sighs> This you do that on the podcast as well. I do sideways. Well, yeah. for those people listening, yeah. sideways turn sideways That's like a chat show. Host. I'm sort of 45 degrees to the microphone. And the reason is is because my screen is over on the right, so I'm looking this way over on the right hand side, and so I have to turn my body accordingly. But the microphone is over here, and she said, "Have you thought about like getting it organised so it's strained up?" And it's only because there are certain limitations within my booth as to how it how it's happened, but it's become so ingrained. Anyway, you I tried to, it, yeah. to change all that, and it was brilliant because suddenly I was only making a mistake every three pages as opposed to in every paragraph. Oh, well, there you go. Amazing difference. Oh, interesting. That's very interesting, that. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, it is amazing what – I think what's – at certain points in your life, you realise that you can – the tiny little things can micro can make adjustments all, can make all the, the difference. difference. Big difference. Macro yeah. results. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Which is, I think, true of all creative processes. But you know, sometimes you need somebody else to put yeah, it so out to you. A few, fewer guys, and you'll you'll get <laughs> sales in the millions. <laughs> <laughs> guys, now a dirty word in here, as you can imagine. <laughs> well, do you know what it? You have to have a few more it's blokes. funny you mention it because for, for <laughs> listeners to last week's episode um, with Daniela Blechner, um, afterwards we were having a little chat and we were talking about how we first met at the London Book Fair. And, I, and we'd met Daniela and one of her um, authors who'd written about her uh, destructive marriage. And I said, oh, it was so great to meet you guys. Um, it made all the difference to Rebecca and I. And I just thought, do you know what? In certain circles, saying guys to two ladies is just not... A- not appropriate well, anymore. That's very true. Yeah. Really? So, well, I think in the BBC, I, I, I certainly got picked up one time and said, look, guys, and it was like three women in front of me, and they went, and they just like, shared glances and went, we're not guys. People. And I, I think that it's really unfortunate that it's become another point of, of friction well, point. And it is, because it's become a generic term, really, hasn't it? Almost sexless yeah. term, and it's, and it's normal use. And that's, I a, that's, a, the that's the beauty of English. It migrates, isn't it, all over the place, but People do put their own, their own limitations on it, which is a shame. Yes, I agree. What a point to to finish our interview. I know. <laughs> well, guys, it's been a great interview. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. Bloking guys and ladies and. Well, before you go, uh, Roger, just tell us where we can find you online and and more about your work. Well, I'm on Amazon, obviously, or on my website, which is RogerAPriceAuthor.co.uk. 
um, and all my socials, which are linked from there. So yeah, please engage. It'd be nice to uh, keep chatting. Absolutely. Fantastic. It has been a real pleasure. And um, likewise. And uh, you, you, you get the gold star for the gold takeaway of the week, I think, um, with your. <laughs> Was that a vindaloo? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, it's been a real pleasure. So thank you so much for your time. Well, thanks again. Cheers, guys. Well, I, I, I was, I meant it when I said, you know, gold star goes to Roger because there were so many great insights into the writing craft yes. uh, from that interview. And um, I'm and sure. New ones, too. Uh, yeah, new ones. I mean, that's, you know, we're always looking for fresh material. And uh, that was extremely useful. So thank you so much to him. Who's our guest next week? So our next, next, our guest next week is a writer called Tim Franks, who I believe is fairly local to us. Yeah, I believe he's from Staffordshire. And um, it'll be great to talk to Tim. Now, I got confused when we first came into contact with Tim because I thought it must be Tim Franks, BBC World Service presenter oh, no. and correspondent. <laughs> Not um, another one. Yeah, uh, and it wasn't. No. So, so uh, it's it's the other Tim Franks. The other Tim Franks. So yeah. like Derek Thompson a few weeks ago, we yeah. have <laughs> Tim Franks. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, look, let's look ahead to our, our week, as we always do. And, um, you know, it doesn't get any less busy, does it? No, doesn't seem to. No, lots lots going on on the Hobeck front. Um, I've been doing lots of work with... Um, Malcolm Hollingdrake's forthcoming Edge of the Land, which is publishing in April. And we've just uh, put his uh, first two books as an ebook box set. So that's available for pre order now. And indeed, a number of other yet. authors are getting, pre, are getting box sets too. Yeah, so um, the other two aren't yet available, but Brian Price's first three books coming out as an ebook box set and Lynn Laversha's first three books as well. So if you haven't read those series and you love to get lost and in the And do we have set, a book coming out this week? We do have a book coming out this week, and it is Lynn Laversha again. So Lynn's fourth book in her Steph Grant murder mystery series, Blood Ribbons, is out on Tuesday. And we've had one uh, sort of hint of a review from uh, the lovely Donna Morfitt. And Donna said something like, OMG, this book is going to be in my best of the year if any, if the first 30% is anything to go by. I think she likes it. It's a terrific book and it spans time because part of it is set in 1940. I'm trying to figure out now when Operation Market Garden was. Oh, was it 41? For, no, 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 no. Much later than that. It was, oh. it was when we were already in Europe. Uh, 44 or 45. And I should know and I feel really terrible. This is the um, airborne attack on Arnhem. And uh, The Bridge Too Far is the film that everyone knows knows about. But uh, it was an Allied operation using airborne troops, which was a disaster, really. And uh, one of the characters in this book is a paratrooper of that period. And then you span across two generations to uh, his great-granddaughter? I don't remember, Or granddaughter. Actually. I can't remember now. But anyway, Steph's on a, on a field trip to the, the battlefields at Arnhem. And uh, at that point murderous things happen yes. and um, it, it's really a, tr- a very very it's a, it's beautifully written it's very very dramatic and it puts Steph in a real um, series of awful predicaments yes and there's a book trailer which I will post today on Twitter so if you want to take a look at our Twitter account get a little bit of a flavour of what the book's about absolutely so that's Blood Ribbons by Linda Versha, our latest book and it's out on Tuesday, the day after this podcast goes live. 
So terrific. Um, so that's busy. Um, I still have been doing my sort of uh, what I described as my filial visits to the north to visit my mum and dad. Uh, dad's still in hospital as I speak. Uh, my mum up in care as well, needing, you know, regular visits and information about how dad is getting on. He is improving and possibly he'll come out of hospital this week. But it's been um, a very trying period for several months now, really, um, on that regard. And uh, I'm also planning a, a mini field trip for myself to Stratford-upon-Avon because I am very keen to make sure that for a future project that I'm about to embark on, I know what a Stratford accent sounds like. Well, if it's next weekend, we can both go. Possibly. <laughs> uh, but I should be meeting up with my uh, longest-serving and uh, the mutual friend that brought us together, Russell Fuller at some point, the BBC tennis correspondent, just back from Australia, having watched the Australian Open. And it was one tinged with personal tragedy during his trip um, as one of the correspondents that Russell is closest to. Mike Dixon passed away during the tournament, and so that really impacted on everybody. So I'll be very keen to catch up with him as well this week. Yes, um, and other than that, um, lots of meetings, um, work, more work, um, the odd dinner, and playing with cat. Yeah. Or cats. <laughs> I'm afraid Aki doesn't get much of a look in anymore. It's Tinkerbell everything at the moment. But if you met Tinkerbell, you'd understand why. I, I think that's not true, actually. I think Aki, <laughs> Aki is getting just as much fuss. She sits on my knee, as always, about five times a day, yeah. um, helps me write emails. So any typos you see in my emails, people, it's not me, it's the cat. No, indeed. <laughs> okay, well, look, it's uh, it's been lovely to have your company again for the Hobcast Book Show. We're enormously grateful to you uh, please subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts from every subscription means a great deal to us and uh, don't forget of course to check out our websites there is www.adrianhobartnarration.com for my audio side of things there is of course www.archpub.net for arch publishing services which is our publishing services arm and of course the main one the big kahuna www.hobeck.net Kahuna? Is that like a Mahuna? Um, but... I don't know. I mean, please don't ask me the origins of Kahuna. We'll figure it out for next week. Anyway, it is the big Kahuna and it's Hobeck Books and, of course, the launch of Lynn Laversha's latest novel, Blood Ribbons, out this week. So check that out, please. But for myself, Adrian Hobart. And myself, Rebecca Collins. We, love, we wish to... Uh, we want to wish you a wonderful and creative week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net. You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Indie Spirit.